Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we'll find out if Stefan's long-awaited Lazy Daisy cake is a new favorite, and we'll introduce a tasty toponym that I typically allow myself to enjoy only once a year. Finally, we'll talk about how we make our purchasing decisions when we're spoiled for choice. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. Andrea, you sent me a tantalizing text this week, and I think you found a dessert that has made its way from Great Britain over to America. Tell me more. I know. I'm so excited. You know, we often talk about how once we talk about something on the show, all of a sudden we see it everywhere. Yeah. I found that to be really true with British desserts. Now, maybe they were always being published and being discussed, and I just didn't notice them. Of course, I didn't have the Waitress app on my phone. (laughs) Oh, those were the dark days. Yeah, very (laughs) dark days. But I'm always on the lookout for desserts this time of year that have no bake in the title. So recently I saw a no bake lemon custard and it came from the New York Times. And it is a custard that is set with lemon juice instead Mm -hmm. of with eggs or cornstarch. So I was so excited. It's then topped with strawberries and a grind of black pepper on top. That really intrigued me. But then the part that inspired the tantalizing text was it said it was based on a British dessert called a possette, and I'd never heard of that before. So I was curious if you have run across that in your time over in London. Well, it's funny that I have because I've been working on a mini segment on unusually named desserts, and this one is in there. Now, listeners, of course, Andrea and I are always talking about what's coming up, but until we are each kind of nearer to completion on on something, we don't typically – typically share it. So that's yeah. why you didn't know I was I was hard at work with this research. So yeah, this is a fascinating dessert that's really evolved through the ages. Oh, okay. So are you going to tell me a little bit about it now or are we going to have to wait until that mini segment? Oh, no, no, no. Let's give a teaser. Yes, because okay. the mini segment probably won't come out till the fall. So yeah, okay. let's get started right now. This actually started life as a drink that was offered when you were feeling poorly. So you have a head cold, maybe you have the flu, and it was cream that had been curdled with beer. What? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm having a couple of thoughts. Number one, cream mixed with beer. Doesn't that sound delicious when you have a stuffy nose? <laughs> that just does not sound good. And number two, when I'm ill, the last thing I want is a heavy dairy. Like cream just does not sound good to me. Yeah. So it, I think how it has evolved into the way it's served today, which is more mm-hmm. like a custard or a pudding, you are still using the acidity from that lemon juice, in this case, to act as the curdling agent, though. Instead of the beer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, But, you know, think about it. I mean, 300 years ago, most people didn't have lemons lying around, but they probably did have ale. And, you know, if you're not feeling well, again, a shot of beer can't hurt, right? <laughs> 
you're going to feel better the more shots of this you have. And you know what? I think maybe we should make the original and the updated version to be, you know, historically authentic here. Oh, my gosh. That would be so much fun. Okay. I will take on that challenge. So I thank you for educating me on that. I had never heard of a posset, so I was very excited to see that. And like I said, any dessert this time of year that has no bake in the title, I gravitate toward. Yeah, and so listeners, if you liked that, just stay tuned. This fall, we'll have a rundown of some other really hilarious, mostly the names of these desserts that are out there and what they are a head scratcher as to what they might be. So that's coming up probably in October. Well, speaking of interestingly named desserts, it's time to review the Lazy Daisy Cake. This came from food blogger Tori's Kitchen, and it is a square cake, even though in my head I hear Lazy Daisy, and I want to think it's going to be a circle because of (laughs) Lazy Susan. I've got to get that out of my brain. Uh, A square yellow butter cake with a broiled coconut topping. Stefan, why don't you go first? Tell us how this turned out for you. I was so excited to make a Lazy Daisy finally. As I said last week in our intro, this is a variation on a hot milk cake, which is one of the first cakes that I learned to make. It is a square cake made really special with a broiled coconut topping. Andrea, interestingly, I did a little more research after last week, and I learned that there are some variations of a Lazy Daisy that are made with a spiced oatmeal cake as a base, which might be really good with the coconut as well. Yeah, that does sound interesting. I thought this cake was very, very fast. It's almost a one bowl, which I know is always crucially important to you, Andrea. Yes, believe me, I made note of that as well. So you are, as with any hot milk cake, you start out by simmering that milk, kind of scalding it in the pan. You're then adding your butter and vanilla until that butter cools down, or sorry, until that butter is melted, setting it aside to cool, and then assembling your other ingredients in a large bowl. So that's your sugar, the milk mixture, and the eggs, mixing well until combined, adding your flour then at that point, and stirring by hand. I thought it was really great that this cake, you didn't need to plug in anything. It was Mm. all handmade. Yep, so easy. You then pour the batter into the prepared pan. You bake it for a very short period of time. We're talking, you know, 22 to 25 minutes until you have hot cake. Hot cake. (laughs) Hot cake. (laughs) How does one know? How do you test for hot cake? I mean, hot cake like it's hot coming out of your oven. Like that. I don't know. It's just usually when you, you bake it until you have like done cake or it's tested or it's golden brown around the edges. Okay. Or... Well, like, you know, you've got like a warm cake. Like it's war- like, I guess I maybe. <laughs> <laughs> when would you pull a cold cake out of your oven? <laughs> it's like we always say, oh, this bread, it's so fast. Like you can go three, you know, three hours until you have hot, fresh bread. I don't know, like hot, fresh cake. I don't know. I I thought you were saying that as a testing criteria, that that's how you would know when it was done. Gotcha. No, no. What I mean is from start to finish on this one, not a lot of time. Yes. So after you have baked your cake and you remove it hot from the oven, (laughs) then you are preparing the icing kind of at the same time as that has been baking. And it is the brown sugar, the butter cream, and cooking that and then stirring in your sweetened flake coconut. You remove the cake, turn on your broiler, put the icing, and then broil it until the coconut's bubbling and it's really beautifully caramelized. And that's about three to five minutes. Uh, Then you're cooling it to room temperature and that frosting kind of hardens back up and then you're slicing and enjoying it. 
Andrea, I thought this was an incredibly easy cake to make. I thought it was very moist, really delicious, and what really sets it apart is that special frosting. Yeah. But I'm not sure I was blown away by the flavor. So tell me your thoughts on that. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, I'll just start with the end in mind, which is I loved this cake so much. I couldn't <gasps> couldn't believe how much I loved it. So Oh, fantastic. I did follow the recipe. I had no problems making it. However, you know, we've never discussed the rules behind our making of the recipes. And I mm -hmm. guess I need to ask at this point if outsourcing is okay. You didn't make it? Well, well, wait, what? <laughs> so I have a shadow podcast host. <laughs> I didn't get I didn't get that crazy. I did, you know, I melted my milk, I put in my butter, my vanilla, I set that aside to cool. Yeah. I added yeah. in my dry ingredients. I poured it into the prepared pan and then I mm -hmm. realized I had to be somewhere. I had sort of lost okay. track of time. So, okay. there was my husband sitting there in the living room. Mm -hmm. And the instruction says bake for 22 to 25 minutes. Okay. I originally thought I was going to say to him, Honey, I'm setting the timer for 22 minutes. At that point, I need to look at it and see if it's golden brown around the edges and if it springs back. And I just decided that was too much information. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think this man has ever baked a cake. So I just set the timer for 25 minutes. And yeah. I told him, no matter what, when the timer went off, he needed to pull the cake out of the oven okay. and just set it you know, on top to cool. And I would be back soon. So. Okay. I took a risk that it might be a little overcooked. We hope but... Tori knows that time range is <laughs> solid. Yes. Well, you will be happy to know it turned out just fine. So awesome. I got home shortly after that, and it was golden brown around the edges, and it did spring back nicely when pressed. Um, when I made that frosting, one thing I did a little bit different, the recipe calls for one cup of shredded sweetened coconut. Yeah. And I had left over some desiccated coconut from a previous recipe, which I think is maybe unsweetened. Yeah, it's drier um, too. Mm -hmm. It's drier. It's more like granules than right. it is flakes. So I had about three quarters of a cup of that. And I decided it would be okay to use three quarters of a cup of the desiccated coconut with a quarter cup of the shredded sweetened coconut flakes because there's nine tablespoons of butter in the, uh, I'm sorry, nine tablespoons of sugar in the frosting. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't feel like the extra, you know, sugar I was missing from that coconut yeah, true would enough. make a difference. Right. Yeah. And so that's the only thing I did a little bit different. And I thought it was just fabulous. When I spread the icing over the cake and put it back in the broiler, she says three to five minutes. And mm. for once in my life, I thought it's not going to hurt me to check before the minimum time. And so I actually set the timer for two minutes. I stood there. I did not let myself leave the kitchen. This yeah. was very difficult for me. But when the timer went off for two minutes and I looked, it was brown. Yeah. So I'm so glad I did that. And I don't even have my broiler rack like up really close to the heating element. I have it in the middle of the oven. So I think um, anyone, especially if your broiler is up closer and you're going to have your pan right up close to that heating element, I would definitely keep a very, very close eye on it because I'm afraid that with all the caramel and the brown sugar and the butter, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, caramel, coconut, and brown sugar and butter, I'm, I'm worried that that could burn really quickly. And it's such a, a cute, beautiful cake, and that would just ruin it if that happened. Well, I'm really glad you brought up the broiler, Andrea. I My square pan that I've been making the whole month's worth of goodies in is a Pyrex glass pan. And oh. we just had an incredible Facebook exchange not too long yeah. ago about people and their Pyrex shattering in different yeah. kind of kitchen accidents. And I once had a Pyrex shatter under the broiler. Now, 
many of them say do not broil. So now I have a dilemma because I have a cake in my square pan, but I can't broil it. So I very carefully removed my cake and put it on a jelly roll pan, put on okay. my frosting, and put that in the in the broiler with no problem. Oh, then, okay. Well, that's a great idea. And then I put it back in the pan. So I transferred this cake <laughs> twice, and it stood up to the test. I really could have used that cake lifter that we talked about oh. in last episode. My gosh, yeah, that would have been handy. Well, yeah. I did something similar. That Facebook thread really scared me yeah. about oh, the Pyrex. Yeah, yeah even, it's very even, shocking if it happens. Absolutely. And I've never had it happen. Almost all of my Pyrex is old. And I think um, one of our listeners mentioned that hers is old as well. And she's never had the shattering. So it might be more of a new Pyrex thing. Yeah. But still, I did make the call. This recipe calls for a 9 by 9 inch pan. But my metal square pan is an 8 by 8. So I did make this in an 8 by 8. And I don't think it, it made a, you know, a lick of difference. It, yeah. I thought it was just fine. Yeah. But that's why I didn't want to put that Pyrex under the broiler. No, I, I agree. So you need, bakers, you need to do what you are comfortable with there. Sadly, this was the only pan I had. So I was just really pleased with my kind yeah. of hack there. But yeah, know yeah. that you are putting it under the broiler. So it's not just that you're baking it. You're also broiling it. Once you get the cake out of the oven, uh, fingers crossed, no shattering happening, you're supposed to cool it to room temperature. I sort of snuck a little bit before it was completely cool because I just think, you know, there's kind of nothing better than warm cake out of the oven and it smelled so good. Do you like hot cake, Andrea? <laughs> no, I do love my hot cake, just as you said. <laughs> 25 minutes straight to hot cake. So I had some warm out of the oven, and then it says to store it, to keep it mm -hmm. in an airtight container at room temperature. And mm -hmm. so I, I sliced it up. I did serve it that night. My husband absolutely loved it. He's a huge coconut fan. Yeah. My daughter would not even try it because she's yeah. in an anti-coconut phase. So that was kind of a bummer, but whatever. More cake for me. I packed it away thinking, well, it's not going to be as good tomorrow. And I didn't put it in the fridge because, you know, one thing I do not like is cold cake. I don't, I don't, whatever. We can still be friends. <laughs> That's quite a stretch for you. I have to say, this is one of the few items that I thought was so much better on day two. I couldn't believe yeah. how much better it was. I mean, it was moister, and I sort of felt like the mm -hmm. coconut flavor had kind of slipped into the cake a little bit more. It wasn't just like frosting as one piece and cake as another piece at all, just sort of melded. It was so good. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I thought last week with the no-bake ice cream sandwiches that that was going to just be my huge hit home run for July. But this Lazy Daisy cake is a real strong contender. It was fabulous. Well, and you put your finger on something that I think I need to do, and that is pump up the coconut flavor. Mm. I think when I make this again, I might consider adding coconut extract or even coconut flakes to the batter as well oh. because I wanted it all. I wanted that really mm -hmm. moistness, like you say, as the frosting's kind of seeping down into the cake layer. I just wanted more. Yeah. More flavor. But you know what this also reminded me of? Not in flavor at all, Andrea, but when you look at this cake and it's so charming and sweet, you think, oh, it's a great snack cake. We did our cold chocolate snacking cake way back in season one. Oh, yeah. Episode four, the cold chocolate snacking cake. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, we're having a lot of laughs about how quick this cake was, but it's true. It's a cake you can decide to make. You probably have most, if not all, of these ingredients in your pantry it's very, very fast. It would be a great cake to do with kids. As I've, as I've said, a hot milk cake is the first cake that mm -hmm. I started making. It's not hard. It's really delicious. 
I want more flavor in my next go round, but I'm keeping this one close. Yeah, and I think that it travels well. Normally, I would think a cake with a coconut flake topping would be kind of messy to slice and serve and pack. But because the coconut is mixed with the butter and the brown sugar and then broiled, it's sort of a hard shell, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. term. Mm -hmm. And so when you cut it up and pack it or put it in a Ziploc or in a little container, it travels really well. So again, just one more vote that it's a fabulous snacking cake. I agree with that 100%. Yeah, it would be a great cake for all of your summertime picnics or outdoor eating. I can't wait. Up next this week's Bake Along is our tasty toponym. This is the legendary Nanaimo bars from the City of Nanaimo website. (laughs) Stefan, you've heard me say more than once that I typically only eat these once a year at holiday Mm. time at our friend Jeannie's holiday party. I'm so excited by the idea of having it in the summer. (laughs) Well, and that's completely the opposite of my experience because I usually only eat them in the summer. (laughs) So... We've been enjoying them at two opposite seasons. Often my family goes to Nanaimo, which is a city in British Columbia in Canada. We go there in the summer. And of course, I have to have a Nanaimo bar when I'm actually in Nanaimo. Of course. So I am cracking up though, Andrea. This has got to be one of a kind, the first recipe we have ever featured from a municipality. The City of Nanaimo website is where we found this recipe. Well, and what I love about it, the reason it's coming from the city of Nanaimo website is because the mayor in 1986 held a contest to find the (laughs) ultimate Nanaimo bar recipe. And it says during a four-week-long period, they received 100 different variations of the famous confection. And, of course, we are sharing the one from the winner, Joyce Hardcastle. I want to know, how did they judge? Did they make 100 recipes of Nanaimo bars and try those? I don't know, but that mayor's got my vote. I know. (laughs) Absolutely. I love these. You know, Nanaimo bars have a really 70s vibe to me for some reason, Andrea. So I was interested to know that they actually first appeared in the 50s in none other than a community cookbook from the Nanaimo Municipal Hospital. And of course, you and I being huge fans of community cookbooks where everyone kind of sends in their recipes and their very homespun and have some great heritage recipes. What a great background. We do love our community cookbooks and such great things often spring from them. And you know, we were calling this a tasty toponym, which you'll remember several months ago, we did a rundown of what that means. That is a dessert that is named after its place of origin, Nanaimo Bar being one of the world's most famous examples. But Andrea, I was also amused to find out that lots of Nanaimo Bar variations appear all over the world, including the New York Slice and the London Fog Bar. I have to say I have not run across either of those. (gasps) Oh, the London Fog Bar is intriguing me because of that great success we had with those London Fog shortbread cookies. I wonder if that's a version with Earl Grey and vanilla and tea. Yeah, I think what it was mentioning, the source that I read, was these are Nanaimo bars in everything but name. So you would just maybe be eating a Nanaimo bar, but in London they call it a London Fog. I will have to do some more on-the-ground research about that. Yeah, I don't think it has that Earl Grey formula. Okay, well, speaking of on-the-ground research, before we (laughs) actually get and start talking about the ingredients, the other thing that was fascinating about this Municipal Nanaimo website was they have created the Nanaimo Bar Trail. Oh, my gosh. It is a self-guided trail of Nanaimo Bar treats, experiences, and souvenirs. And so there are 34 locations where you can find everything from a 
cranberry Nanaimo bar, a traditional Nanaimo bar, a Nanaimo bar spring roll, a raw, organic, vegan, and gluten-free Nanaimo bar. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And they have all the locations. They have the addresses. They have the phone numbers. And then they have a map. Mm -hmm. So you Mm -hmm. could, you know, I'm, of course, immediately thinking, oh, my gosh, I could do this on my next bike trip. (laughs) I could make this part of my bike ride. For all of the years that I've been going to Nanaimo every summer, I can't believe I didn't know about the bar trail. I mean, I was stumbling upon them just very easily throughout our stay there. So I am definitely checking out the Nanaimo Trail. Well done, Tourism Nanaimo. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) May you be, oh, Andrea, we should do a whole month of recipes from municipalities. Nanaimo would just be the first. I mean... (laughs) Uh, How refreshing and lovely to have this recipe pop up on their city website. You know, cities across the world, if you're listening, please send us your original recipes. I was going to say, before we commit to that idea, let's make sure that Nanaimo is not a a one and done in terms of the recipe. see what we get. All right. But speaking of the recipe, I do have a couple of questions here. Okay. And I also wanted to point out that unlike the Lazy Daisy cake that was super easy and practically one bowl, this recipe is looking a little bit more complicated. It has a bottom layer, a middle layer, and a top layer. It's also something that needs to be chilled in the refrigerator. And I think When I've had it at Jeannie's house, she has served them chilled as well. So I don't think it's something we talked about taking things on picnics and that sort of stuff. I think because of the amount of dairy in this, it might not be something that would last outdoors for a long time. I think so too. I think, so you have that bottom layer, which is the coconut chocolate layer. And then your second layer is a stiff custard. But I have been on the receiving end of a Nanaimo bar that has been out too long. And it just gets gooey and not easy to eat. So I'm with you. I think this is a cold, chilled dessert. Yeah. Well, that bottom layer specifically calls for a different type of butter. So I did want to talk about that briefly. It calls for half a cup of unsalted butter, but it mentions the European style cultured. So Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that's like the Kerrygold or the Plugra or something along those lines with the higher butterfat content. Exactly. The kinds that I can just get so easily, you might have to search out a little bit more, but are still very readily available in the U.S. Yeah. Higher fat content is what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Not only will I have to search, I will have to shell out a few more pennies, but I am willing to do that in the the name of research. Of course, it also has some sugar, some cocoa, an egg, some graham wafer crumbs or graham cracker crumbs, as yep. I think of them, some finely chopped almonds, and the coconut, as you mentioned. So do you think that's the sweetened flaked coconut or the desiccated coconut like I used last week? You know, I'm going to use my Angel Flake Sweetened okay. that a friend has sent me because I'm dearly in love with it. It's it's a special ingredient for me here. So okay. this recipe is an interesting blend between kind of American and more British ingredients, mm-hmm. which we'll get to in a minute as well. And so I like that about it. And yeah, but I'm going to plan to use my Sweetened Flaked. This is going into an 8 by 8 pan. You mix all of those first ingredients. Actually, you melt the first three ingredients, the butter, the sugar, and the cocoa. And then you add the egg. Of course, I'm going to be very careful there not to curdle the egg. I did want to call that out. Yeah. And then stir in those graham cracker crumbs, the coconut, and the nuts, and press that into an ungreased 8 by 8 pan. The second layer has another half cup of unsalted butter. I'm really loving this recipe. Love you, Joyce. (laughs) 
two tablespoons and two teaspoons of cream. So that's just a little, you know, scant three tablespoons, I guess, is kind of how I think of it. And then this mysterious ingredient, two tablespoons of vanilla custard powder. It's so funny. I sent you a text in advance of us making this, and I said, here's what it is here. I can find them everywhere. It is like a Pudding is what I would liken it to, but okay. it is an instant custard powder. Here you you literally just add boiling water to it if you want a dessert custard. So you're looking for that. Andrea, do you think you can find it? Will you be substituting an instant pudding? I will look in my British section of my grocery store, and if they don't have it, then I will get, what do you think, just vanilla instant pudding? I do. I think what it's going to do is thicken up this custard so okay. that it sets nicely. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think pudding would work in a pinch there if you needed to. And then two cups of icing sugar, which I think of as confectioner's sugar. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to cream all of those ingredients together, spread that over the bottom layer, and then we've got one more layer, and that (laughs) is some semi-sweet chocolate and some more of that delicious butter. And you just melt that and pour it over the second layer and then chill the whole thing in the refrigerator. Now, are you going to be able to get semi-sweet chocolate, or are you going to substitute something else? I'll have to substitute chips. I can't find bars of that here easily. So I'll be doing some semi-sweet chips with that butter. One thing I love about this recipe, it's like when they were making Nanaimo bars, they just said, what do I love? Mm, I love (laughs) butter, sugar, cocoa, mm, graham crackers, coconut, almonds. Ah, I love custard. I love chocolate on top. Why not? It's like everything, you know, that's so delicious right in one place. So I'm really looking forward. I've certainly enjoyed eating these, have never made them. And I'm really looking forward to doing that, too. Me, too. I am very excited. So remember, we will have a link to both of the recipes we've talked about today in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 134. That was the Lazy Daisy Cake from Tori Avey. And then today's recipe is the Nanaimo Bars from the City of Nanaimo's website, We'll put those up on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Stefan, I remember the first time I heard the phrase spoiled for choice, and that was back in our stone fruit month. September 2018, I remember it well. We made a delicious peach pie, a plumberry meringue, and an apricot peach and blackberry crumble. Yes, and it was that crumble and the inclusion of the apricots that had me scurrying all over town looking for fresh ones. While I was spoiled for choice with a plethora of apricot selections. A delicious dilemma indeed. And that made me start thinking about how our stores stock their goods and then how we make our buying decisions. And with the apricots, obviously, location played a part. Living in London, I've noticed all sorts of fruits are available to me at different times of year than I'm used to in the States. For example, the famous Yorkshire forced rhubarb, which is grown in the dark and harvested by candlelight. That means I enjoy fresh rhubarb in March instead of having to wait until late spring or even early summer when I used to grow my own in Seattle. There's also a lot of warmer weather, softer fruits imported to the UK from Spain and Morocco, like berries and passion fruit. Right now, of course, the delicious British strawberries are in season and the raspberries in my own back garden are producing like crazy. And in keeping with one of our 19 for 19 baking resolutions, we both are trying to bake with more fresh local produce. Luckily, many of the recipes we've made over the last few years have interchangeable fruit ingredients. So I can substitute blueberries for strawberries as the summer progresses and then mix in blackberries when the blueberries start to wane. Flavor is a huge reason to buy local and in season. But let's not forget another reason, and that's price. 
most grocery stores have great prices on the items currently in season. Oh, yes. We noticed this at my household with asparagus recently. Washington asparagus comes into season in April, and it usually lasts through mid-May. But this year, I think it lasted even a bit longer, up through the middle of June. And then all of a sudden, one night, my husband comes home holding a bunch of asparagus and asks me, should this have been $13? (laughs) I almost had a heart attack. Oh, I would have too. It sounds like one of my visits to the American food store. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Another delicious dilemma I face regularly living in London is selecting from the amazing bounty of jams, preserves, marmalades, and curds. My morning toast and afternoon scones will never be naked again. Oh, I bet. My choices are much more limited in that area, and I fully admit to being a sucker for packaging. I've recently purchased the Bon Maman brand of preserves simply because I like the shape of the jar. It's (laughs) short and squat, and I love that red checkered lid. Not only do I like the looks of it in my pantry, I like reusing the jar when it's empty. Mm. But that makes me wonder, how do you decide which item to choose when you're facing that famous wall of curds in Fortnum and Mason? Uh, One of my favorite places in the city. Well, there's always my favorite, classic lemon curd, so I make a point to grab a jar of that when I'm there. But it's always fun to see what the Fortnum and Mason tastemakers have been up to. You guys know I'm a sucker for anything with rhubarb or passion fruit. And at the holiday time, they sometimes stock one that has champagne and or edible glitter or both. It's very festive and very tasty. Stefan, you'll not be surprised to know that perhaps we aren't making those choices on our own. Mm. There is a whole field called Consumer Purchase Intentions that watches our food shopping behavior, and it's massively studied and researched by the food industry, grocery stores, and of course, marketing associations. I feel a little bit like a rat in a maze. (laughs) No kidding. This article I read uses such great language. Grocery stores are food retail environments, grocery shopping is food shopping behavior, and eating is energy intake. And I guess that makes (laughs) us the consumers. You got it. Uh, Apparently, we are influenced by three major things in the stores when it comes to making our purchases. Well, you've already mentioned price, so I'm sure that's one of them. Yes, price and pricing promotions, or what we might typically think of as coupons. Coupons. Uh, Admittedly, I am not much of a couponer, but I am a complete sucker for promos, such as the buy one, get one. I'm amazed at the tricks retailers have up their sleeves in this category, and they all lead us to buy more. Pricing with a percentage off rather than cents off, including a bonus item in packaging, and presenting us with what's called a pleasant surprise. (laughs) This is an unexpected in-store coupon for an item we'd already planned to purchase. This happened to me recently. I do believe it is why I have three pints of coconut gelato in my freezer. (laughs) How about you, Stefan? Well, I don't have as much experience with paper coupons in the UK per se, but all of the grocery stores here have loyalty cards, and they reward their customers with price breaks that are tailored to their shopping habits. The store knows I'm already going to buy wholemeal bread, I do it every week, and then up pops a loyalty coupon for half off or a multi-buy discount. Stefan, one thing in the pricing category you didn't mention, although I'm quite certain you're influenced by it, is something called alliterative price promotion. Apparently, consumers are influenced to purchase alliterative price promotion, even when the non-alliterative version is objectively better. So you mean I'm more likely to buy two tea tins for 22 than two tea tins for 19? 
That's right. Crazy, huh? Crazy, but quite possibly true. That $22 price tag does have quite the ring to it, especially to me, the world's biggest fan of alliteration. Okay, after pricing, let's talk about the second category, the actual product. Okay, here we're influenced by everything from the product itself, the packaging, the nutrition labeling, the brand, and even the shelf placement. Shelf placement proved true for me in our grocery store escapades in episode 118. I noticed my eyes naturally fall on the middle shelf, and I had to force myself to look up high or down low. And as a smaller person, I sometimes can't even see or reach things on the top shelf. (laughs) I bet product scarcity also factors in here. Oh yes, even when it's manufactured product scarcity. One of the reasons there are so many pumpkin spice purchases in September and October. That fear that if you don't get it now, it will soon be gone. So we know the price and promotion influences our purchases. We know shelf display and the product influences our purchases. What's the final category? This was just a lovely grab bag category called in-store and consumer decision-making factors, which sounds really scientific, but it came down to some simple things like BYOB, bring your own bag, and when you do, you're likely to make more purchases. Your payments, if you use a credit card rather than cash, you're likely to spend more. And then my favorite, if the grocery store has a particular smell, it can make you spend more or less. That's fascinating. And I guess it makes sense when I think about the smell of fresh hot bread in a bakery. That would definitely lead me to want to purchase a loaf. Or why I immediately want a cinnamon roll or chocolate chip cookie when I walk into the mall, for that matter. This study was more about ambient scents or manufactured ones throughout the whole store. And it showed that a simple scent, and they studied lemon or orange, led to increased spending. Whereas a complex scent, and they studied lemon basil and basil orange with green tea, did not lead to increased buying. Apparently, your brain uses more processing time to decode the complex sense, and that slows you down and makes you purchase less. Oh my gosh. Well, I enjoy learning about all the behind-the-scenes work to make me buy things I might not truly need. Yeah. Next time I'm in the grocery store, I know I'm going to ask myself if I really need that chipotle chicken chimichanga or if I'm falling for the alliteration. And I'll be on the lookout for those pleasant surprise coupons and ask myself if I really need to stock up on multiples of an item or not. At the end of the day, to avoid unplanned purchases, I know a good tactic is to not shop when I'm hungry. Also, since moving to London, where more of my shopping takes place online, I've noticed I'm much less likely to pop an impulse purchase into my cart, my online cart, that is. And I will stick with my grocery list and remind myself to only get things that are on the list and avoid those beautiful displays that tempt me when I walk in the door. Listeners, we'd love to hear what drives your purchasing behavior and any tricks and tips you can share with us that helps keep your grocery shopping on budget. Send us a note at host at preheatedpodcast.com or pop on in to our Facebook listeners group. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. We release new shows every Monday morning, and next week, we'll find out if our tasty toponym from a Canadian island tastes as good coming out of our kitchens as it does in British Columbia. And since it's a month with five Mondays, we'll have a special bonus episode where we award the coveted preheated blue ribbon to the square dessert we loved the most. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe. 
and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. And you know, we were calling this a tasty top of it. We were, oh my god.